everybody welcome back to another episode of the balanced blues brothers podcast yet again we are here uh joined by myself travis a and jordan cohen again with us um by now everybody should know where to find us uh been this been a pretty consistent cast now for a while but uh we had a little bit of a little bit more of a break this time around because there was the plymouth game um in the fa cup and then moving forward uh, midweek, we had the match in the semifinal of the Club World Cup against Al-Hilal. And then we had the final of the of the Club World Cup against Palmeiras yesterday. And overall, uh, some pretty close competitions in each of these matches, right? So Plymouth, they really pushed us hard. Uh, they were very, very resolute. They kind of got their own goal against the run of play. Um, you know, we created 41 chances in terms of shot attempts. Uh, you know, and Plymouth were, no matter what, they were battered all game. You know, we controlled the match, created chance after chance, but they held strong and took us again uh, into an extra time situation that took a Kepa saving a penalty kick, which is what he's become incredibly known for now at this point in his Chelsea career to advance us to the next round and avoid penalties themselves. Um, And then against Al-Halal, once again, it was a pretty quiet match. It took a, you know, right in front of the face of the goal, um, you know, empty net kind of situation for Romelu, Romelu Lukaku to convert and send us through. And the other kind of big moment of the match was the, you know, late save, diving, you know, clawing save by Kepa that kept us uh, a clean sheet in that match and got us through to the next round. And then in the final, one again, once again, another match that goes to extra time. Um, you know, Palmieras had a late PK that was awarded and converted, and that equalized from Romelu Lukaku once again, uh, being the scorer for us early on. And then it took finally a Harvard's PK in extra time for us to avoid PKs once again. So we score a PK in the final to avoid them, and we stop one in the FA Cup to avoid it. Um, so with that kind of brief breakdown of the matches, I'll kick it off to you first, Travis. You know, what were some of your uh, breakdowns and analysis, you know, from any of those three matches, um, some of the things that stuck out to you, if individually or collectively across those matches. Yeah, I mean, there were three awful games. Um, 78 shots in those games to score four goals, and we needed extra time in two of those games. Like, I mean, I'm really glad we're going through in the FA Cup. I'm glad we finally won the Club World Cup, but that's pretty awful. Um, yeah, I don't really know what else to say about them. Um, just, our just really just isn't clicking, and we've tried. Yeah. I was just to say really quick, just to support what you're saying, uh, four goals out of 78 shots is a five percent conversion rate. That's that's five yeah. percent is random chance. So that's that's literally it, we basically shoot a ball, and uh, one out of every 20 times it'll it'll stick. Yeah, and two that's of those defenders are penalties. Scoring. Go ahead, Jordan. Yeah, no, I mean, 5% conversion rate, that's why the defenders are scoring, right? Like, that's how the numbers break down, is yeah. if it's if 5%, your attackers aren't scoring. Or if they are, they're scoring just as much as your wingbacks, which is the case. Yeah, and I mean, two of those are penalties, so two open play goals and, you know, 70-plus shots. Like, we have to figure that out somehow, and, I mean... I like three at the back as a formation, but the way we do it is very conservative. And I think we definitely saw that in Club World Cup where, you know, maybe we were kind of afraid of blowing it again and we played it a little safe. But, but man, just three awful games. I don't know what else to say about them, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, to a certain extent, we won, right? And at the end of the day, a win is a win. I think I, I saw the attack it, we do a lot of just passing and like it, 
City do this too, right? But City are so drilled, they could do the same move 100 times in a match. And if it works once, they score. And we're just not there yet. We do it 100 times and it doesn't work. I thought we looked much better when Pulisic came on. Because I think he ended up, it switched from like a 3 4 2 1 to a 3 4 1 2. And I think that looked a lot better. And I wonder is that kind of maybe the next step is you play with just a sole 10. But I don't know. You're going to, I think, Jordan, it's good that you bring that up because it's kind of something I wanted to discuss later here in the episode uh, regarding Hoppers. But I'll uh, go to you to build off, you know, what they've been saying and kind of your breakdown and analysis of the, of the last three matches. The, the, uh, the Club World Cup matches were exactly as I expected them to be. Somehow, when you go up against teams that you are favorites against in 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 matches that there are trophies on the line, it's never as easy as you want them to be. I know City beat I know City beat the uh, Watford six 0 in an FA Cup final, but that actually that actually happens much less than you would expect it to. So, I mean. The Palmeiras game was apparently like us going to Palmeiras away or something like that. But it, it just shows that when you come up against teams that know exactly what is on the line, they are not just going to, no matter how, how poor they are, they are not just going to let you walk over them. And we're not a particularly dominant team attacking-wise. We're not a city. We're not Pep's Barcelona. So when, when we come up against teams that dig their heels in, I don't expect it to be a 4-0, a 7-0 victory. But I do expect us to win because I believe that whatever it is that we do, we should be able to gather enough moments to win. And I'm really not, I'm not as bothered about the, about the shots thing, though it's, it's quite alarming that against against Palmeiras in the, the final, we took 22 shots and had only three on target. I think we're flat attacking-wise in the final. It was it was glaring from the get-go. And I wasn't actually surprised. Yeah, go ahead, Travis. Yeah, so I was going to ask, you know, so, so what about the, you know, 78 shots created doesn't and, and only converting four, two of which were PKs, what about that doesn't concern you? I think that's an interesting an interesting take on that. Yeah, I think generally shots are converted very few. Shots shots are not shots are converted at the say nine to fifteen percent for for a whole team anyway. So I I don't think it's uh, it. That's why I look at more specific things like big chances. We took we took forty one shots in in. I think we took 41 shots against, was it Plymouth? So, yeah, so you're kind of saying like we can have a lot of shots, but it really matters more about the how, how big of a chance that is, yes, not necessarily how many chances. chances. The quality of the chances. Because several times we, shots are, are anything. If you take a shot from midfield, it's a shot. We take a shot from an angle that you know would never get near the post. It's also a shot. The, the average XG, the average XG of, 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 a, of, of, a shot of the shot is more important than the amount of shots. And six big chances in three games, I think, is is actually okay. But three games is also a small sample size. I would I would prefer to look at these things on a broader scale. But looking at short conversion in a very specific in a small window of time like that is always going to look fishy. I agree that our attack has not been giving us what we want. But I also think that it's not as simple as we think. For instance, man, I, many people think it's, uh, it's put, put better attackers there. I think you can put better shot takers, which I think City have. I think City have very good players technically. Their shots are very good. But I think we should, if we focus more on chance creation, for instance, City... They, they know the law of numbers. That's why we, we can have the same short conversion rate as City and still have way less goals than them because they create far more. And I, I agree that their chances are generally better on average, but they create far more sh- shots than us. So even if they convert the same amount, they'll end up having more goals than us. I think if we focus, we need to focus more on the kind of shots we're creating and not just taking shots. 
And I think our attackers, that's something our attackers need to work on because I've maintained for a long time that the vast majority of our forwards don't take very good chance in the final third. I think the, the, the time to release a pass is just as important as the kind of pass you're making. It's as, it's as important as a player's technical skill because you could dribble a player. Dribbling, dribbling is only useful when you get past a player and do something with the ball after them. If you dribble a player, and Ziyech was guilty of this several times against, I think it was against um, Palmeiras in the final. There was a, a point he dribbled two players, and at the point where he was supposed to release it, he held on to it for a third too long, and the ball was lost. I think our attackers do that a lot. They, they don't utilize... They, they are good. Our attackers are good. I mean, attackers can't come to Chelsea and put on the Chelsea shirt and suddenly become bad. So they are good. But I think a lot of factors are contributing to us not scoring as much as we would like. I personally am not that bothered about the attack, which I know is a weird thing to say, but I'm not that bothered about the attack. I think it's worrying that we created uh, two big chances across two, the two Club World Cup games. But I also think that it's... Uh, in, in those games, the result is more important than the performance. And when you play against teams that you literally have no hope, should I say, or no chance of playing any, at any point in the season, you can't really know what to expect. You can watch video clips, but at the end of the day, in the match situation, there's a lot of things to consider. So I think but I, I, I am more worried about how flat we look in the attack, really. Yeah. So imagine so, we took we took I was gonna pivot I was gonna pivot there. I, I mean you've you've kind of brought up a lot of good points about you know we, we're creating chances now, the quality of the chances isn't, isn't as good, but on average, we don't have the same you know ability to create these chances as much as we normally have. Would you say that what I mean, what would you say is the biggest thing that you've learned? Is it is it a part of that attack? Is it something else, or is it just you know, have you learned the most that if we do create chances, we're not clinical enough in converting what we can create? And then when we are clinical, we don't create near enough. Is that, is that, I don't know if that's something like would be your biggest takeaway from these three matches. I think coordination in the attack is something that's very important because I, I, I think I saw this with Everton too. Our attack thrives on chaos and a lot of our attacks are chaotic. It's, we we move randomly until we disrupt the opposition and, and then we and then we do something. I think with Ziet we have that coordination. Surprise, surprise. But I think with Ziet we do have that coordination. Though Ziet is a is a right winger. So when you coordinate attack from one end of the pitch, it's you, you become slightly predictable. But with Ziet it's not as predictable as it can be because he doesn't do just one thing all game. Yes, he he's trademark in swinging cross into the boxes is something that everyone knows. But he often distributes the ball in a way that if he sees a player in a better position, he gives the ball to that player. I think with the other attackers, for instance, when Ziyech wasn't on the pitch against Palmeiras, you could see that you couldn't really get what it is that wanted to do in the attack. And I'm not just saying that because it's yet, though I may, I may be. I'm not sure I can tell the difference. But I genuinely believe that when Ziyech is not on the pitch, the attack is not as coordinated, it's not as organized. Because it, just as you need an organizer in the defense, you need an organizer in the attack. Everyone can just run forward and do things until something happens. If you, if you try that, you will get goals. But at, in, 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 in important games, and in all games, really, I think we need someone who, like Ziyech on the pitch who is older and has the composure who doesn't just run because we have Mason Mount, we have Kalimot Sonodoy, we have Pulisic. Pulisic is a, is a high volume dribbler. So when he gets the ball, he looks to run and dribble. But when you dribble players, something has to happen next. And often Ziyech yeah. is the one that provides, a, 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 provides himself to, to take that from possession to chances. And that's yeah, why, we... despite having bad games, despite being disappearing in and out of games, Chelsea's highlights often involve Ziyech because he's the one that turns many of these things into, into chances. I mean, when he came on was when the penalty happened and 
our attack looks, you know, slightly better. Yeah, I don't know if anything wants to, anybody wants to pivot off what he's saying there, continue on, or if you have your own biggest takeaway um, that you've learned from these matches. Yeah, I mean, I like, I think the only reason Ziyech didn't start the final is he, I mean, I think he was burned out. Like, I think they used him a lot. I, I think it was just rotation. Uh, because when he came out, he was really good. I, yeah, good. That, me, that's are, exactly why I didn't Yeah, and to me, there's kind of like this attack works best in three different ways. One is Yek, right? And you build out the right, off the right side and try to either take a, get an overload and get a good shot or cross over to the other side with less people on it. I think the second way is kind of what we saw yesterday where you put Pulisic or Havertz or somebody that, it will go back, get the ball, and control it is a sole 10, right? So that means it mounts another option. There there can't be another 10. Like, what Tuchel does with inside force, they're not really 10s like the way we know 10s. Um, and, and so I think that three four one two with the sole 10 is the second way. And I think the third way is Havertz is a lone striker, right? It's kind of this deep-lying striker. Not necessarily a false nine, but similar in a lot of ways. Like basically a center forward, second striker kind of idea. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think with Lukaku, that last one's less common. And so it's about, okay, how are you going to get Havertz on or a Sol 10 on? Or not Havertz, I'm sorry, Ziyech on or a Sol 10 on. And I think that's going to be the challenge. Like, I actually did not think we were bad during the Plymouth game. Like, I mean, we weren't good. But in terms of like getting good shots i thought we did a good job of it given how they were defending i think the club world cup may have been a victim of these guys that scouted us out but like we just didn't have good scouting reports on them especially that last match also the key too is this is like the most important competition for most of those clubs that they can possibly compete in i mean this means more to them than you know arguably the champions league might mean to us you know it's it's or at least it's a good equivalency i guess Oh, uh, yeah, 100%. So I, I'm not, I I am really interested to see the Crystal Palace match, the Leo match, and then the Liverpool match, kind of back to back to back. I think we will learn a lot about where this team is at that point, because I, I assume Reese James will be at least able to come on as a rotation guy by the Crystal Palace match. So I'm pretty interested. I think it'll be I, I don't know what formation Tuchel is going to go with, and I think it may depend on the opposition. My guess is Liverpool, we see that three four two one or three four one two because it's a great way to stop their like wing strikers, their wide strikers. Um, not so sure about the other two matches. Like Lille's kind of a more traditional team; they're not like super unique, but they're really good at what they do. So that may be like a four one four one type. Um, and Crystal Palace, I think Tuchel's just gonna try to experiment so i don't know we'll see i I am less upset about the performance as recently as a lot of people just because i don't think they're indicative of much good or bad Travis, go ahead and you know get in on this build if you have anything or your own takeaways and i'm just gonna you know i think i wanted to go back after you do that to something that uh, jordan was talking about with the kind of hovered you know the zx dynamic and how do we get that to accommodate yeah i mean i think some of it is just you know thomas tuchel is still really unsure of how to get this attack firing together. Um, I mean, it it hurts us to not have Joel and James. So we're kind of limited in what we can do a lot of ways, but at the same time, we're kind of victims of, you know, what we normally see with like Everton or West Ham. Like we've had so many managers come through and every manager gets a new attacker in. And now we just have this weird mishmash that doesn't quite fit together. Like, like it, it seems like Lukaku would do well with a strike partner, as would Timo Werner, but we don't really do that very often. Kai Havertz would probably do well with a strike partner. And then you have Ziyech, who, you know, he's been doing really well when he's been able to be the widest guy. But just how we set up our attack, it's not often he can be that widest guy. Um, you know, Mason Mount is... You know, he's always going to be involved, even though, you know, we have to worry about his injury now. Uh, and, you know, then you have Pulisic and Hudson Odoi, who, you know, they're wingers, but, you know, they're not perfect at everything they do. And it feels like we kind of need more perfection than anything right now. So 
you just squeezing everyone in seems to be a constant battle. You know, I was surprised he etched didn't play given how he's been the guy in form, but I mean, it just seems like Lukaku's and Mason Mount are the only guarantees right now. And we're just kind of figuring it out, it out around them and we don't have a solution yet. And, you know, that's still concerning. Um, it may be part of it is, you know, people were talking about how badly we needed time off to rest, but now we just seem like we're out of match fitness. So, you know, it, it just seems like a constant battle that we're going to be going through until the summer when it looks like we're going to have a reshuffle of our attack. Yeah. And I, th- and I think this is kind of what I want to get at. You know, my biggest takeaway is that the fact of the matter is we have this incredible defense where we have the, you know, best one, two punch of goalkeepers in, in the world right now of any clubs. Um, we have this really good center mid room. We have Connor Gallagher out on loan. We have Billy Gilmore out on loan. These are positions that I think that are totally locked up despite what we might think, right? They are pretty much locked up for this season. And we even have people we could bring in make transfer targets to improve, you know, kind of the long-term future of that position. And I think everybody knows what I'm alluding to when I say that. Um, but let's be, let's get honest here. The, the biggest thing I've learned from this is look, 41 chances against Plymouth Argyle at home. And you put one, you put, you put one away and, and, and that's it. Uh, it's just, this. I just don't think this is enough. I mean, one against Plymouth, you know, you got, you have, uh, you have, um, what else was there? I mean, you have one against Al-Hawal, you have two against Palmeiras. This just isn't good enough. And I, and I do think that this is indicative of more because these are th- how many times we have, we have this conversation of how do we get this attack going? How do we get this attack clicking? How do we get center mids more dynamic? That used to be the discussion like five years ago. How do we get the center mids, you know, lying back, creating the chance? How do we replace us Fabregas? We, we, we pretty much have continually asked different questions that circle around the exact same issue for the last five to six years. And that's where I think that this kind of finally catalyzed for me uh, over these last few games and because of the quality of opponent we're playing. Granted, I'm going to I'm going to caveat that each of those three teams probably gave some of their hardest efforts they probably have in the, of their entirety this season because of the magnitude of those competitions, relatively speaking for them. But at the end of the day, this Chelsea football club, they may be in in uh, in their entire squad can't even come up with a, a, a total value that's even going to be uh, 50% of Kai Havertz's or Lukaku's transfer fees or Kepa's, whoever it might be. So the bottom line is this is just the, the, the amount of resources that we have and how we continually can't figure out one problem that we have talked about again and again and again and again and again, and again with uh, pretty much since the departure of Diego Costa and Cesc Fabregas um, is how do we get this attack firing? And that actually, this isn't just me rambling and ranting. This actually is getting into where I wanted to talk about because we have this one very, what I would almost say, uh, he, he's a very fickle player, and that's Kai Havertz. You know, he's now scored um, one, two of the bigger goals in our most recent history to give us the you know Champions League, uh, the Club World Cup, you know, so on and so forth. Um, it's a penalty. It's not that much, um, but they all count the same. So that's why I'm not going to get into the, you know, the subjectiveness of how much it matters. Um, he doesn't make any sense to me. And Ola's kind of putting in the chat that Kai, Hogbert, Kai Havertz is an enigma. And I think that's a really good way to put it. But although he's an enigma, he seems to be somebody that's, when played with Romelu Lukaku, much more, not only is he more effective, but Lukaku is more effective. So, and this is the reality of the situation that we've already discussed on this podcast many times is that we're probably not going to get rid of Lukaku anywhere anytime soon because of the amateurized value situation, as well as how he has already opened his mouth, which has probably damaged any negotiation starting points that we would have from a financial, you know, asking offer uh, for, for a buying club. So regardless for all those external reasons that I don't need to go back into, this is probably who we're going to be playing a lot. And it looks to be that Kai Havertz can play that. And this gets into this really, really good thread that Jordan shared with us all earlier in the midweek from Euro expert. Um, and it really went into the disappearance of the traditional nine uh, or striker, the traditional center forward striker um, in the, in today's era. And it kind of breaks down maybe, you know, which teams uh, have mostly done that. And when you look at the top six, a lot of the top scorers are not traditional nines anymore, um, especially with the teams that play these false nine in, into inside forward positions. 
Um, but there are caveats to this. And, and kind of what, what Eurosport was getting at is the cam, who used to be that number 10 position, would occupy that zone 14, which is that final attacking third that sits right outside of the uh, the opponent's uh, uh, penalty box, um, right there in the center of that. Um, you can look that up on your own time, too, for any listeners out there. Just look up, like, soccer zones, and you'll see this stuff. Um <clears throat> Uh, anyway, getting to that, you know, there used to be that occupying area there. So it gave that, that attacking reference point in the middle so they could get, you know, hold up the play and get the ball and chant, create the chance of the striker. Now we see that the strikers in the modern era with the way things have progressed much more is these false nine to inside forward positions. We see that striker dropping in and out of that zone and back into the box more. And Jordan also jump in and correct me if I'm, you know, misparaphrasing any of this stuff uh, at all. So um, and, and, and the striker is going to have to be involved in more than just, you know, receiving the ball after the chance is created. Um, but we, I, I have this opinion that Kai Havertz in maybe this two striker system could actually function a lot more of that uh, in that center forward who operates more in those areas and drifts around. Whereas Romelu Lukaku can get back to what he normally does, which was like an inter Milan, Lutaro and him feed off of each other and Lukaku creates and scores almost all the goals. Um, not to say that Lutaro didn't score a lot as well. But again, there's a reason why Lukaku led for two straight years in both assists and goals um, on that team. So <clears throat> I have this theory that that could happen, that we can find a way for Havertz to start occupying that area. And that's an, if we're going to play a back four, I think that's with a 4-2-3-1 that kind of variates around a lot more, right? Because we know this, the, the, you know, kind of this more less positional rigidity that Tuchel plays with. So what I want to pose to you is, do you think, first, I want to ask, you know, how do you think that Havertz fits into this team? And that's kind of what I think. I think we have to start using this two-striker setup or a striker center forward or a striker support striker, second striker um, between Lukaku and Havertz, respectively. But again, conversely, I also want to ask not only how do we use him, but what is his legacy? Because as Olav perfectly said, he is at this point an enigma in his career. Massive transfer fee. Really, his, uh, I, I'll just be blunt, his career is living off of two goals at Chelsea um, for the fee that he's been given. We have almost two years of Havertz, and we don't even know what position he's best at. So this is me putting it out on the line. That's what I think my best position for Havertz is, not just individually, but I think within the context of this entire team, this is how we're going to get him to go. Um, so I, that's what I'm going to say. Uh, I don't know what his legacy is right now, but I think that this is how we make him a highly important player in this Chelsea team and submit an incredible legacy that doesn't just revolve around almost a Mishi Batshuayi-like uh, profile where he scores a few huge goals that win us something, and then that's it. Um, so that's what I will say about Havertz, and I think that's his current legacy, and I think that what we can do is what I described, but getting him more and around these central areas to support other players running in behind him, pr- primarily uh, Romelu Lukaku. What do you guys think? I know that was a lot, uh, you know, to go through, but I, I really think this is the, the topic I've thought about the most the past few weeks, um, a lot about Kai Hoberts. And these last few games really showed this to me, especially with the thread that you sh- showed uh, share, Jordan. So I'm going to stop there and, and let somebody else talk. Yeah, I, I mean, I, my view on Havertz is I think he's, what, 21 years old. He came from Bayer Leverkusen and was in this weird system where he was, I mean, he was the Lukaku kind of, right? He was the guy that got everything. He went back into midfield. He was everywhere. He was their system. I, to me, I think Lampard may have been onto something where Havertz's best position long-term may actually be as a midfielder. Uh, like, I don't know. I, I actually think Havertz's best period in his Chelsea career was kind of that start under Lampard where he was playing as an attacking eight. And he was the centerpiece. And then I think he got put in other positions. He kind of complained a little bit um, and, and ends up being in this like false nine position under Tuchel where he plays well. I, listen, he's young. I think he will improve. I think consistency is an issue. I don't know with if Lukaku is going to start, if Havertz can be at his best as an attacker in a symmetric formation. Um, maybe like asymmetric where you put Havertz is like a second striker with Ziyech as a winger and you just have that left wing back cover everything. I think you can do that with Chilwell, but I'm not sure you can do that with who we have right now. I, they're going to have to keep playing Havertz for the same reason they're playing the playing Lukaku, which is he's not going to, you're not going to be able to sell. Um, so you got to figure out the make, way to make him work. I think he looks good with Lukaku. I think he gets some freedom. 
Um, but but when you play him with Lukaku, the zones to the left side don't get covered. And that's why Callum started yesterday, right? Because Callum can cover that left side. I, I don't but know. If, I, I, I was going to ask really quickly, does anybody know if it's true? But I saw like somebody, I can't remember who it was, somebody that actually is somewhat more reliable and not just like some, you know, random FT account. Um, they tweeted out something like, I think that the majority of like Lukaku's goals this season have come when Kai Havertz is playing with him. Um, that's true. I think like, okay, I just wanted, I just actually, wanted to throw that out there. To yeah, that's support true. I saw that. It was like a very healthy percentage. Like it was, it wasn't just like a 51%. It was, it was like 75 plus. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think Havertz draws, he occupies that zone 10 or zone 14. I mean, right. Like he draws somebody so they can't put three guys on Lukaku. Um, but, but if that's all he's doing, you have the team of Werner problem, right? Where it's like, okay, this guy does something really, really valuable, but he doesn't actually do the most important thing that we need him to do at that position. So, yeah, I don't know. I like him a lot, but he's a little bit of an enigma. That's, I think that's a good way to, if that's, if that's your, anybody's answer for his legacy so far at Chelsea, I think that's a absolutely valid answer. No argument can be given. My, st- my stance is Kai Havertz is not valid for money. Let me just put that out there, and, and my daughter's like getting backlash now. He's not value for money. I agree, dude. I've said, I think I said it, uh, I can't remember, I said it sometime last week, that, not last season, that Kai Havertz's best position is occupying the space between the midfield and the forwards. And that, that coincides with that zone 14 you spoke about. He's, he has a very tidy touch. He's a very tidy player. He can receive the ball in tight spaces, do his footwork, and 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 pass the ball out. Yeah, he's I mean, not that, the creator. That play that he had, where he controlled it and almost blasted it into the top of the net from like an impossible angle in the final. I mean, it shows that that's the type of quality he has. You're absolutely right. He has all of those skills. Yeah, it's just exactly. it's just like he's it's. I feel like the convert. You're right, and I feel like kind of what you're approaching with Hobbs is that he has it all. But and sorry, I'll just stop there. I, I don't think he has it all because I think to have it all, you have to be known for many things he's not known for creating he's known for scoring but he's not a good finisher you know he's i think he came to england with a perception and that perception is what is working against him now he came to england as this finisher creator who you can build a system around i think when we talk about big fishes in small ponds does Harvard fall into that? I'm asking the question because everything revolved around him at Leverkusen. But that's the point. At Leverkusen. Leverkusen is, is, is not on, on, on Chelsea's tier. Now we're now we're on, 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 on God's tier, you know, because now we're in the we now have the Club World Cup. You know? But what I mean is it's like being it's like being it's like everything revolving around you at the club, like say the club that consistently finishes fourth or fifth in the in the league can we really count can we really expect Chelsea to build around around that kind of player because let's also not forget that Kai Havertz is also from the Bundesliga and no matter what you want to say there's most there, there are things you can do in Bundesliga you can't do in the Premier League there's space you have in Bundesliga you can't get in the Premier League the kind of space you get in the Bundesliga is different from what you get in England in that, you know, it's not, we can't discredit every goal that is scored in Bundesliga. That would just be silly. But at the same time, you can't transplant a player from Bundesliga and expect him to do the same thing in England. So that also has to be considered. I don't think he's a creator. I don't think he's a very good finisher. I think the things he does well are things that I wouldn't pay 72 million for. I'm sorry. And that's why I say he's an enigma because in the Champions League final, he scored, and he was remembered fondly till the following season. And in the following season, he had some good moments, but generally he wasn't great. I think the his twenty two uh, points at some point stops holding as much water as it should for me, because when we got him, he was advertised as, despite being young, he's this, 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 and that. And now that we found out that he's not many of those things that we expected him to be, we've fallen back on his young, he would improve. Definitely he will improve. But 
So will Pulisic, so will Werner, so will yeah. every player that. I mean, not, Pulisic, you know, Pulisic, Mount, James, you know, exactly. they're, all, they're all the exact so, same, more or less the same we, age. The problem is, we have all those players that we didn't spend some two million on. So we can look at Mount and say, oh, he's only just this amount of age. And we can look at Hudson and say the same thing. We spent some two million on Harvard and we're still being promised when he comes good, when he finally gets to his peak. It's it's going to, I'm going to sound very critical of Harvard, partly because I think he's, we don't tell the truth about him. We're extremely protective of him. And I, and I understand it because he, he did his thing. I remember I asked, I think I asked on the Slack channel that if we get Haaland for 150 million and he scores the goal that seals us the Premier League title and the goal that seals us the Champions League title, and, and that's only two of six goals he scores in the season. Has he, has he been worth the cost? And many people disagree that, no, he's, he's not been worth the cost. But that's exactly what we're doing with Harvard. Harvard scored, his only Champions League goal was the goal he scored in the final. And people said we, he, he got us the Champions League final. People say he, they think of him as the guy who won us the Champions League, which technically it's true, but we did everything to get to that point and Harvard didn't really play a role. And then in the final, he did his thing. A similar thing can be said about him in the Club World Cup final as well. He was handed the penalty because he was handed the penalty. He's a very good penalty taker, so he deserved to be the guy to take the penalty. But at the end of the day, can we really say his impact in the final was, you know? So I, I, I call him an enigma because when you talk, many people will say, but he got us the Champions League. But he didn't. Because you can't, you can't win the Champions League through one game. At the end of the day, you can't win the Champions League if you don't win the final. But you can't win the Champions League if you don't get to the final. Also, so I think that, that zone, that place just at the top of the penalty box is the perfect place for him. The problem is, I find it, it it's dishonest of me if I, if I hold the player to just intricate touches and nice passes. He does score goals, yes, but who doesn't score goals in the sport? Even even Christensen is now a Chelsea goal scorer. So he does score goals. I don't think he contributes enough goals or chances. I, I, I don't really judge players based on assists because you can get assists from anything. But he doesn't contribute enough in chances. He doesn't contribute enough in, in big chance conversion. He's very wasteful with chances. Most of the things I would judge 72 million players on, he, he falls short in, in, in many of those categories. I cannot... In all honesty, George Harvard's on intricate touches. He's good at it and he's very tidy with it. But I think I think we need to see more. I, I'm not advocating against sold, but it's a very it's very difficult to justify playing him over certain other players because they are contributing a lot more than he is. But his price tag means it's just a very awkward situation all around. It is. I think you raised some good points about that. You know. Um... Travis, I'll let you round this off. You know, what are some of your thoughts on, you know, how do we get the best of Kai? Is he somebody you can, and you know, is that something you can rely on going forward? And do you, how do you kind of echo the similar thoughts of Jordan and, and Olaf regarding his legacy so far? Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing that's happened to Kai Havertz is the fact that Thomas Tuchel came in and won the Champions League. Because, you know, if we had gone last season trophyless. I don't really think anyone's talking about Kai Havertz as a potential player to come good. I think we're just talking about him as a flop. Like, and and he is. He is living off a Champions League goal and a bunch of terrible performances or, you know, lukewarm performances at best other than that. But not seven. And everybody, that's what I, I, I honestly, totally agree with you. Yeah. And honestly, the, the trickiest thing about Havertz is that Mason Mount is so good and it's it becomes tricky to fit mason mountain kai Havertz both in lampard tried but you know maybe we're missing the players for lampard to have pulled that off um maybe we're still missing those players and i i think i think the best way to look at Havertz is kind of how people would look at thomas muller like thomas muller is a player that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, he's not a striker, he's not a winger, he's not a midfielder, yet he's done but, all those things. But he's only, like, the, maybe one of the best five players of the last 15 to 20 years, no doubt. 
Right, but it's like in a really weird way because he would he'll either have a season where he's just scoring tons of goals but doesn't assist anybody, or he, he's assisting a ton of people but he's not scoring at all. And like it just makes no sense how it works. And you know, Havertz is a very similar kind of player. Like he's not really a forward, he's not really a midfielder, he's not really a winger, and yet he's kind of all those things too. So you know, finding the right way to use him, like Leverkusen was able to do, they were able to you know give Havertz basically a completely free role, and you know not necessarily funnel things through him, but because of his freedom, they were able to you know put players around him that he was able to succeed with. And I think we're still trying to kind of figure that out. I I agree, Lukaku with him is the way to go. You know, even Timo Werner with him, I think, would be the way to go, like we did last season when. Kai was the false nine or the, you know, striker up top. I think we're not going to see the best of Hoverts until we're consistently doing a back four and we have the right players to put around them. And, you know, maybe the problem is we still don't have those players and we're still trying to figure that out. But, you know, I think Muller is the model he should be looking at. And it, it's just going to be weird. It's always going to be a weird to fit Hoverts in. But if we can figure this out and get him playing like he was at Bayer Leverkusen, like we've got something truly special on our hands. It's just how long are we going to wait for that to happen? One thing I just want to chime in is I, I don't know that it is the back four versus back three that's the problem. I think they probably like Thomas Muller at Bayern, no matter the system, even today has the freedom like is ostensibly the focal point right and, and now like Nagelsmann has him is quote-unquote like the right inside forward but he's the same role he's always played and now because he's kind of declined just a tad he's given like three or four zones where it's like you decide where you're going to be in these three or four zones at any time there's no structure around you and just do your thing uh earlier in his prime it was hey you can be wherever we don't care just we're, we'll funnel through you and Chelsea keep buying players that prevent that from happening. Like, this is not a Jorginho thing. I think at this point in their careers, like, I would rather have Jorginho in his role than Havertz is the Ronboider. But when Jorginho's in there, he's the focal point. Now you have Lukaku, right? And when Lukaku's in there, he's the focal point. So all of a sudden, like, it's very difficult to use him. And it's because Chelsea consistently do this where they buy attackers that are really unique and dominant because of their uniqueness, but then they don't fit. Uh, and like, I think one thing I will give the board credit for is I don't think they've done that with defenders. I think they've done a really good job of saying either back four, or back three, these defenders fit together. And we just haven't done it with attack. And I think you see the difference, right? I, I think like, I, when was the last time we saw Pulisic as a sole 10? Because he was great yesterday. Like that was Pulisic's best performance, I think in, at least since the Real Madrid matches. Um, he was incredible. But, like, we just don't – we don't have the combo of attackers to pull that off, right? If you make Pulse like the sole 10, then all of a sudden Ziyech and Havertz aren't in their best positions. Well, if you play Ziyech and Havertz in their best positions, then, how, like, one, who are you starting on the left? And, two, like, what happens to Pulse and Werner? And it just – it doesn't – there's no consistency where, like, back three, right? Rudiger, Silva, whoever you want to right center back, we're pretty good there. Uh, back four, you do Rudiger and Silva with two, with Milan Sar and Chilwell or Aspilicueta is the right back. Like, the system fits together in defense. And I actually think it does a midfield. It may not be the midfield all Chelsea fans want at this point, but, like, it's hard to say Conte and Jorginho don't fit together. Um, and we just haven't done that in attack. And I think that's the problem. It's why I'm not necessarily opposed to selling some of these guys, even though I pretty much rate, including Werner, Werner I rate all of our attackers pretty highly. I just, they don't fit. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really good point. It's a very subtle point. We seem to have a very good ability to buy, purchase, and slot in defenders and midfielders, but we really can't do it on the attacking side. And this has honestly been a trend, I would argue, since, you know, Drogba, Lampard, packed it up and, and and moved on i would argue that's been a trend since then and well really it's been a trend since the end of mazakar um 
you know, the, the Mata Hazard Oscar uh, link up they had up there. I mean, you, you had players like Mata producing 19 goals, 35 assists, and then the manager sells him the following season after pretty much exiling him from the team. You know, we, we really have not had those uh, types of attacking players since where we had, you know, a Hazard, a Mata, and a Cam, and a striker who could all coexist in the same team. And despite one obviously being the focal point in Mata, we still had Hazard who could just have these moments of absolute brilliance that, you know, that Mata himself couldn't manage. So it's a very unique dynamic, but this is a continual conversation. And I think that continues to show that we get it wrong again and again and again in those areas. Why do we get it wrong in those areas? We, like Jordan said, we pursue these big focal point, you know, unique attacking signings. And we, we, we really don't look, I mean, look at like what uh, Liverpool have been doing. You know, they have Diego, uh, Diego Jota that they brought in for a reasonable fee. He's done incredible there. They just got Luis Diaz, who looks like he's probably going to be pretty successful there too. You know, and then you look at Man City, other than Jack Grealish, they really have done pretty well on a lot of their purchases. I mean, Grealish to me has not been that super successful uh, since he's moved over to City. But regardless, getting back to the, you know, the, the, the kind of the issue here, uh, of you know, we got to find a way to get Hobbards clicking, but I think you guys are kind of getting at the right things. And I don't think he's going to be specifically the, you know, full Romdeuter, uh, Romdeuter, I think that's how it's pronounced, um, you know, the, the Tomas Moore role. I don't think he's going to be quite fully that. I don't think he's going to be quite fully a striker. He's not going to be quite fully an inside forward. I think we just have to kind of give him this enigma-like position just to, you know, the enigma position, just like he himself is at the club, uh, and let him operate in, you know, those attacking zones in and around uh, the top of the box to open up better spaces for Lukaku. Um, and uh, yeah, oh, a uh, good point. We play at four, two, three, one. And I, ha- I kind of had that same idea myself. If we do to go, you know, move to a back four, I almost think that, that four, two, three, one makes more sense than moving to a four, triple two. Um, but again, uh, we're going to go ahead and pivot now. You know, we've kind of have gotten through a lot of, of, of the main points of this episode. So I wanted to, to cap this one off just by asking, you know, it has been an uncanny amount of success for Chelsea football club recently. Um, in the last 20 years, especially for a lot of these older fans who've been around for so long. It's such a stark contrast to what they, you know, historically have seen. Um, but the thing is, we keep saying, wow, you know, you're always going to hear people say we don't have any history and all that kind of stuff. But it's getting to the point now where we're almost had 20 to 30 years of su- su- sustained success and playing some of the biggest teams in Europe consistently. Um, so I have to ask, where, what do you now consider Chelsea's legacy in world football? Where do you think it is now that they have now won? They are one of only six teams ever to win every trophy available to them. Where do you put their legacy in world football? At the very top. I mean, when you hear the, the, the clubs that were in the company of, that have won every trophy available to, to, to the club or to, to, at, at club level, you, you see that we, we have joined the elite, we've joined the Bayern, we've joined the Ajax, we've joined the, the Real Madrid. You know, we, we were not quite there. And that's the, the main point that people make and should make when they talk about the Manchester City. I mean, it takes, if you are that dominant, you should be able to, you should be able to get one Champions League trophy. You should be able to get one Champions League trophy. If, if, if they are getting... 76 goals per game in, in, in the Premier League. And when it comes to the Champions League, they do their thing until they get to wherever they get to and they get knocked out every time. And they just keep spending money and still can't deliver the, the, the Champions League. Then that just shows that, you know, we're still a bigger club than Manchester City. So I think it, it does put us at the, at the very top. And that's thanks to, that's thanks to, to Roman Abramovich because he, Ever since he took over the club, he has been devoted to... He said he wanted to make Chelsea one of Europe's elite, and he has. He wanted to make Chelsea one of Europe's best, and he has. So it's he has put his money where, where he put his mouth, I should say. And he has always he has always done what he thought was right for the club. Even when it came to the, a club legend. You know, if you didn't think... Lampard needed to be sacked. Lampard would have been sacked. Why would he go out of his way to agitate Chelsea fans if he didn't think it was necessary? But he saw that for the club to for for this club to get to where I need it to be, I don't think this manager is the guy. And if he thought the manager was the guy before, if the manager stops being the guy, he he finds another one. It has never been personal. It has never been. 
a vendetta. It has always been what's right for the club, bring him in, give him the money, give him resources to do what he needs to do. If he doesn't deliver, get someone else in. And it has worked so far. And I think, you know, he's he made it look easy. People thought, many, many clubs said they can't be a Chelsea, they can't be sacking managers, they can't do the revolving dust thing. If they try to do the revolving dust thing, they, it, it won't work. It won't work. Everton has tried it. Watford is trying it. It's not as simple as it looks. So finding the right the right replacement when you sack managers, knowing how to go about you know the recruitment, I think the Chelsea board doesn't get enough credit because or they they are remembered for the uh, Zapacosta signings and the Giloboji signings and the you know a lot of things stick in the fans of mind in the minds of fans, but ultimately they have done a very good job of keeping the, the club self-sustained and generating revenue for the club to spend in the transfer window, the club to pay players uh, attractive wages, you know, all those things going to attracting the best players to the club. You can't just say, you are going to play beautiful football, so come, come play for us. The money has to be there. You can't just offer money. You also have to offer the stuff. You know, players are not just going to go after money blindly. Otherwise, everyone will be going to Saudi Arabia. So they've, they've balanced it out and they've made it in a way that you know, the club remains attractive for the, the, the best players to go to. And that's a, hugely thanks to Abramovich, the, the managers he has appointed, managers he has sacked. You know, he, Manchester United were with, were with Tosha for four years or three years. I, if they had sacked him earlier, they probably would have moved past that by now, but they, they stretched it. And so stretching, keeping a manager for longer than he needs to be there is also has its own consequences. So Abramovich deserves a lot of credit for that. Just to follow up on that, Ola, I, I think the other thing, like, I, I think Chelsea are at the top. I think we're the only team that's won the major trophies that are possible, all of them. Like, I, I think we're at the top. I, we also have an identity. Like, outside of the Ancelotti team, all of the best Chelsea teams have one thing in common. And I think this is why Lampard was fired. They are Tough as hell to score against. Every for whatever the reason, right? Whether it's Tuchel, where it's both combination of like defensively solid, but also you keep a lot of possession, or Mourinho, where you just out tactic the other team, or Conte, where you're just like really drilled and solid. Like all these teams are a nightmare to score against, and I think that's really important, right? Like you know when you play Bayern, no matter when you're playing them, they are going to be they are going to score. They're going to be dominant. They're going to control the ball, no matter who their manager is. You know, when you play Barcelona, they're going to, I mean, generally speaking, the best Barcelona teams are going to tiki-taka their way to goals and way to stop you from scoring. And I think that's really important. I think it's also amazing that he's done it with so many different managers, right? With different philosophies. And to me, that is what makes Chelsea, Chelsea, is that, you cannot score against us. No matter who, back four, back five, back three, you midfield two, midfield three, midfield four, you cannot score against us. I mean, it took us, what, like 19 years to complete football? Like, we are one of the world's biggest clubs. Our legacy is there forever now, along with, you know, Juventus and Ajax and Barcelona, Real Madrid. Like, we are top of the top of the table. You know, it... it it was just hilarious to me to see guys like Piers Morgan be like, oh, they're not even the biggest team in London. Like, does anyone think of Arsenal when they think of London anymore? They're not even the second place team in the table from London right now. It's West Ham. So, and, and then you have guys like Craig Burley that are talking about the Club World Cup being a small cup. But, you know, he's just the closeted Manchester City fan who spent all this time hyping them up. Like Manchester City would easily trade their Champions League or their Premier League for a Champions League. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's so you know you have to win the Champions League to do that. Pep Guardiola can amass you know league title after league title because he's given billions and billions to spend, but he still hasn't won a Champions League or competed for a Club World Cup since he uh, stopped coaching Lionel Messi. So you know Craig Burley, yeah. I think it's just he's just an annoying troll for mostly with his anal- analyzing and and a lot of it is always this anti Chelsea view even though he played for us which makes no sense. Um, 
But no, I saw those comments too, that he called the club world cup, a plastic trophy. And that, you know, while we're celebrating man city, you're going to win the real trophies. You know, it's just like, okay, well, yeah. Already all literally spent the run up to our club world cup talking about how whoever wins that is the world champ, because you have to win the European championship to have even a shot at the world championship. So no, they're a better team than us. I, I, I mean, I know that's part of Guardiola placating, but again, I, I'm sorry. I just had to butt in there because the stuff from Craig Burley was just absolute nonsense. Yeah, I mean, it's hilarious is, is what it is, just because, you know, like City would absolutely trade their Premier Leagues for a Champions League. That is the whole reason they got Pep Guardiola. You know, they've been trying to follow Chelsea's model, but and they've gotten a lot of success, obviously, but they're still missing the one they want. And we finished off our trophy cabinet. So that is what it is. Like, I don't want us to become like, you know, Liverpool and talking about our past successes, but, you know, this is a club that's going to be talked about for a very long time to come as one of the best over these two decades. And ain't no one going to take that from us. Yeah, I think what I wanted to, you know, I, I think you're right. And I think there's, here's what I would say our legacy is, right? We are obviously one of the best teams in in football and world football. And, and I don't care, you can argue how long our history is, but it, it points to it. You can, if you want to say, well, you don't have a full history because it's only, you know, been a lot of winning in the last 20 years. Then my response would be, okay, so if we aren't one of the most historic teams in football, we are the most efficient team in football ever. If anybody wants to argue with that, then, you know, I think we're, we're arguing this, you know, metaphorically speaking, we're arguing the color of the sky there, and that's just not a debate. Uh, numbers are numbers. Um, you know, so uh, that's how I would put us. And I think that really, the you know, I would describe that's the that's the what of we are. But I think the how of what we do it is exactly what Jordan was saying. And that's what always what stuck with me, you know, even growing up as a younger kid, like watching these teams. I always felt that Chelsea had this resolute determination to never, never truly be out of it. And I think on top of that, it had that, you know, kind of just grit determination. And a lot of that was underpinned by defensive resiliency. And I think that's where I would put us. I think that's where I would characterize us, how I would describe us and all of those kinds of things. That's where I would go with it is that this is a, you know, very defensively solid team that has done this for 20 years and they've won a ton, a ton of trophies. They've won more trophies at a faster rate than probably almost anybody bar, you know, maybe Madrid in the, uh, in around the conception of the Champions League, I think in the late 50s, early 60s. you know, so I think other than that, you know, that, that's where we that's where we rank. There's no doubt that we rank as one of the best teams, uh, given that we've completed it and very you know few teams have done that. Um, and then conversely, I think that we are one of the most efficient teams to ever do that uh, feat, if not the most efficient. And then finally, I think that we're built off this resolute defensive, you know, wall of steel, this never say die attitude, unlike, you know, Barcelona, where it's the tiki taka around the pitch or whatever it might be, you know, every other style. I think that's that's the, the our own testament is we don't really necessarily have a, a managerial style. We just have a personality um, about the club itself and, and some of the players that it has. So that's where I would put it. That's really where I would go with it. Um, I just wanted to, you know, kind of point out, I think it's interesting that um, another part of what I would say with what our legacy is, is we're, you know, we're the one that you love to hate. I think that's kind of what I would say Chelsea are. And, and it's not really that we're the villain. It's it's more so that I think there's this archaic kind of, you know, monolithic view in a lot of the, the uh, you know, annals of uh, historic football clubs and Chelsea just aren't in that conversation. And we're not going back 40, 50 years talking about Chelsea as one of the most identifiable teams. And I think that because of that, right, so many other teams were talked about and discussed and written about in those types of circles and those types of ways for so long that when the, you know, when the new boy Chelsea came, you know, to that table to try to sit down next to everybody else in world football, you know, the people that write about football themselves sort of had this kind of, I I feel there's almost this off-put feeling that, you know, should we, this newcomer to the game, you know, like this, you know, they're not really the historic team. Should we really characterize them as this? Are they actually real? Or are they just a fraud that spend a bunch of money and ruin football? I think that's the the interesting part about this club, despite all of the, you know, previous good things I just said and where we rank. I think that's the interesting part. So I would, and I'll, and I'll summarize it with this. The last time it, uh, an English team won a, a club World Cup um, before Chelsea did just uh, yesterday uh, was Liverpool. 
And the ESPN FC, which is an American-based, uh, you know, football-based coverage or whatever you want to call it. Um, anyway, it's not even a UK or European-based coverage. Um, you know, their headline for Liverpool was, are Liverpool really the best team in the world? And their headline yesterday for Chelsea winning are Chelsea celebrate plastic trophy. Um, again, so I will leave it at that. I think that that sums up what I said. This is a team that absolutely is one of the most historic. We've won everything. We've done it off of a complete defensive resiliency. And there's this absolute like character personality of never say die across, you know, all managers, players, whatever it might be. And then on the flip side, we are the one that you love to hate. And it's absolutely obvious by the headline I just gave you from a, not even a uh, English or European based news outlet. So that's where I will leave it. I think we are one of the best. It's absolutely. And, and like, look, here's the bottom line. If this Chelsea team repeats the Champions League this year, I think that we have to start moving our uh, this conversation a little bit more, uh, even even higher into the discussion of where did Chelsea rank at all time. And out of the clubs that have won all of the things that are available, I think you really have to start having a conversation with saying, well, you know, if we're going to run this on a 100-year timeline, and they might not be the best, but if we're going to run this on a 20-year timeline and we win again Champions League in 2022 – I think you really have to start looking on a 20 year, 20 to 30 year timeline and saying, this is quite frankly, one of the best clubs, if not, you know, number one, number two, number three, they're in that discussion probably in the last 30 years, Sir Alex Ferguson era, Pep at Barcelona. And I think the only other, and then maybe Chelsea, I mean, you have Bayern that have had a lot of dominance in that era as well, but I think that's where I would go with that. And with that, guys, I'm going to say, um, really, uh, I, again, really enjoyed this episode. Really enjoy us, you know, the conversations we're having on this stuff. Um, and, and we'll come back. Uh, we'll come back soon enough, break down some more Chelsea. Always a good time. But for all you listeners out there, thanks again for the support, listening. Uh, we, really, we really appreciate it. And for all, uh, for all, keep the blue flag flying high.